Hello, friends. Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm a research evangelist. And welcome to the Research Evangelist Podcast. You know, a lot of people ask me, like, how did I name the podcast? And, you know, it's not a religious thing. So it's really more about, you know, the Greek meaning of evangelist is bringing the good news. And I like to think I'm bringing the good news in cancer research by interviewing people in life sciences who are doing great work. And I call them brilliant, but not famous. And well, of course, they're all well known and respected in their fields by their peers and the communities that they serve. But my next door neighbor just might not recognize their name. So I enjoy these conversations. I love to share the stories to my audience. And I'm just really having a great time um, meeting some um, brilliant people. So today I'm excited to introduce Dr. Uh, Estela Rodriguez. She's a uh, triple board certified hematologist and oncologist at Sylvester Comp Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Miami. At Sylvester, Dr. Rodriguez works as part of a multidisciplinary team of cancer experts and researchers. She earned her medical degree from the State University of New York, uh, SUNY Downstate College of Medicine. She did her fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania, which of course is my alma mater, so awesome. And her residency at the New York Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center. And Dr. Rodriguez is, is also fluent in Spanish. So welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. So glad to meet you um, by podcast. Awesome. This is great. Um, so I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. And, you know, I gave you that intro, but um, why don't you start, let's start by having you tell us about, um, you know, your work. I know you're involved with the clinical trials portfolio um, at, at Sylvester and, and the lung uh, cancer screening um, program, but why don't you tell us about what you're working on? So, um, so I co-lead our, our, what we call the side disease group is our thoracic uh, research group. And um, I think the most rewarding part of thoracic oncology now is that obviously we have had a lot of new developments and new drugs, but also um, we have um, one field that you really have to work together is thoracic oncology. So one of a lot of the work that we do is really trying to bring everybody together. So from screening, it requires you know conversations with our pulmonologists and our, our thoracic surgeons to really have programs that meet the needs of our community. Um, so from the screening perspective, um, we are doing a lot of work trying to reach our Hispanic community um, that has a, um, in terms of smoking intensity is less, uh, but it doesn't, there's no message in terms of smoking um, screening in this community. So there's a lot of work to be done. Um, we recently reviewed um, and compare our population to the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial. And people don't realize the National Lung, Lung Cancer Screening Trial wasn't a very diverse group of patients. We really only had about 1% Hispanic. So we have a 50% Hispanic population in this market and we have reviewed our screening, our uptake. And what we found is that very hard to get people to screen and also very hard to get them to adhere to the screening guidelines, which are three yearly CAT scans. So that's one thing we're committed to. I think that um, part of lung cancer treatment is to get more people treated early with surgery. So that's one of our first priorities. Um, but in terms of clinical trials, um, like, you know, I think nowadays to be a thoracic oncologist is so rewarding because we have treatments that are so effective. And we know that over the last year, uh, we have had several drugs um, for patients that never had treatment before. So we, you know, in the last year had approval for Medex on 14 skip mutations, and we are enrolling, um, have patients in those trials and now have offer 
treatments for them. We have two agents in that market. Um, we have patients with red fusion mutations that previously we had been um, enrolling patients for the praseltinib trials, the blue trials, and it was very rewarding to see that our data and our patients uh, that contributed to that study really got that drug approved relatively fast. So we're uh, we have follow patients and in those trials, so we are we're committed to understanding all the genes, and we have a large data repository. We call it the patient atlas. And we have relate every time we do genetic sequencing on a patient or a liquid biopsy, all that data, if you, even if it gets sent to an outside company, it gets reverted back to our database. And every time we have new trials, we have our own understanding of what our population is. And I think that that's you know one of our priorities to make sure that we understand in a personalized way all the genes that are causing the tumor in each patient. And I think um, the next. Um, the priority for us is innovative trials. So um, one of the trials I'm excited about are um, trials that are targeting what are resistant pathways. So we have seen a message for KEEP1 uh, mutations that are involved in cellular detoxification. So it's something that if, you, if it's mutated, um, we have found that patients don't respond as well to chemotherapy and immunotherapy. So trying to identify those patients early, that's actually one of the third most common mutation in lung cancer. Um, and it's a pathway that we don't, we're just learning to understand. There was some data recently that even for patients that had the new agents for KRAS, like Sotoracep, uh, patients that had keep one mutation may respond better so that it, there are commutations that in immunotherapy may not uh, allow you to respond, but in other, uh, with other agents, you may get a response. So I think identifying those patients, and we have a first-line trial that has a, um, for keep one positive patients um, that would add something to the immunotherapy upfront to help with the, um, the resistance. So I think that's, you know, really where we want to go. We want to understand now that everybody's getting chemotherapy, immunotherapy, unless they have a targeted uh, mutation, those patients now when they recur on immunotherapy, uh, we really need to understand why that's happening. And, you know, every patient is different. So getting that information from the get-go and understanding the pathways, I think is going to allow us to treat patients um, longer and more effectively. Yeah, well, it sounds like the combination of the of the screening program, particularly in the in the in the um, you know the Spanish community, mm -hmm. that um, is really going to be um, kind of a, a a helpful way to get you know more um, equity, you know, in you know, in getting people um, access to the to the targeted things that you mentioned. Um, so as far as the uh, testing that goes on um, at your center, what's how robust is that in, in terms of the genomic testing that, that gets done? Um, so we, you know, we now have two FDA approved um, platforms uh, for liquid biopsies. And I think we do utilize that um, universally in all the patients that present with stage four disease. One of the things that we found during COVID that I was, um, you know, was surprised is that you know, initially we kind of shut down the clinics and, but we have patients that presented with disease and they needed to be targeted and they needed to be understood, mutations needed to be understood. So we were able to do phlebotomy at home to do a liquid biopsy. And I thought that that was kind of a, a way in which technology um, has allowed us to continue treating patients uh, during this whole pandemic. And I think that, um, you know, I imagine a future that we will be able to do like, you know, um, 
um, swabs in the mouth. I mean, really do testing, personalized testing, and the patients themselves will have a lot of control over their information. Um, so, you know, that's interesting. So I, I will tell you that. So we do li do liquid biopsies universally. Uh, when we do have tumor, we uh, still try to get uh, the gold standard, which is a tumor biopsy. And we use uh, platforms with foundation and CARIS. But that data gets uh, sent back to us, to our database, so that we could um, do studies and, and select uh, patients. When we look for clinical trials, we look at our database and see, you know, what what is our need? Because um, molecularly, um, there's also the diversity. So um, not only do we have a very large Hispanic population, but we might have a population that maybe has a higher percentage of uh, KRAS, for example, so that we need to understand our population genetically as well so that we can offer the right treatments. Well, that's awesome to hear about the, the uh, getting the blood draws at, at home. Yeah. That's, I mean, COVID has definitely changed that, but I, I'm seeing a trend now. And I think maybe that's one of the silver linings that comes out of, out of what's been happening. So that I think as from a patient, you know, speaking from a patient um, perspective, you know, anything we can do to make that experience um, easier and, you know, more convenient, I think is, is really, um, is really helpful. Have you gotten that kind of feedback from your patients? Yeah, I think that, you know, the two things that really cha uh, changed um, uh, practice for me, one was really to bring care to patients at home when we had, couldn't bring patients to the clinic, but also telemedicine, uh, really that technology had been underutilized by most oncologists and we had to really get on it because we had to see patients. And um, and I think that patients really have welcomed that um that technology in a way that they can go about their lives, they can bring family members into the consultation. Um, I really think that um, even clinical trials, I you know, there's a lot of uh, effort uh, to try to get clinical trials and break clinical trials barriers by having telemedicine as a tool. Because you know, I don't know if you if you for clinical trials, first of all, they're very time intensive and there um, there's a lot of hurdles you have to go through, and that's one of the things that for our our communities that, you know, patients that are working that, um, that really don't have the luxury to take time off and travel, um, having telemedicine as part of a, a tool that can be used for clinical trials is going to allow us to offer trials for, to more patients. You know, we used to have people come in for just like a lab, they had to drive like, you know, 20 minutes, um, and they will have to come for labs like, you know, weekly or come see a doctor for like five minutes, but still drive, you know, pay a parking spot, you know, driving to bad traffic into Miami. So all these things that we can avoid with telemedicine, I think is going to improve the, the care that we give to patients and access. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can tell you, I work with a number of other patient advocates, as well as myself on the metadata um, patient design team, we talk a lot about this because it, we could, we talk about those barriers and the things you just described, like, you know, driving, I live, you know, take me 45 minutes sometimes in traffic to drive to Boston, you know, and then parking and, and the whole experience. So the telemedicine really, I think is really, is really important from, from your perspective. I, I can tell you from my perspective, at first it was a little challenging. It was kind of weird because I'm, you know, doing, I'm not able to sit and, and actually be with you, you know, as my clinician, but, but I've gotten used to that. Are you feeling the same way from your perspective, looking back at the patient side, or do you really, I mean, obviously we miss seeing each other in person, but how do you see that? Um, so I think that for routine visits, um, people have gotten used to it. Uh, obviously there's a, 
whole other barrier of technology, not all patients, not all, especially older patients that really didn't grow up in the internet age, it's, it's challenging. But I think that we just have to develop a technology, you know, Zoom platform that we're using to talk today wasn't really developed for telemedicine in medicine. <laughs> so uh, we're using this technology that wasn't really developed to make it easy for older patients. So I think that there's going to be an investment and development of easier technology um, and um, so that we can reach everyone. But you, so to answer your question, patients are um, like in the convenience of it, but they still want to come in. Um, and I think their conversations, especially in on lung cancer, that um, to me have to be done in person. And you know, you want to hold people's hand, even if we're wearing gloves and we're trying to keep our distance. There's still a very personal connection that sometimes it's hard to get online. But um, but I think it's it's here to stay. I think that it, it makes it more convenient. Uh, patients are getting used to it. We we can get through video a lot of information about the physical exam. Um, I had diagnosed uh, deep vein thrombosis by images that people show me of their legs, rashes. Um, we can listen to their lungs, but um, we a lot of patients have bought these pulse oximeters during COVID because they were told that they had to monitor oxygenation. So we have patients, you know, check their pulse oximeter. Some patients even check their blood pressures at home. They can give us a lot of their vitals themselves. Um, so it's really making the patient more in charge. And I think that uh, patients, um, uh, I think that's, on, that's only good. I mean, I think if patients can do some of their monitoring at home and they can communicate with the doctors in a way that is easier, it's gonna allow us to take care of patients better. Yeah, and I think one thing you pointed out, which I, I think is really I should emphasize you know, to our listeners, is that that access to whether it's even to the, to the internet, you know, the technologies, or understand the technologies. So, whether they're older or they're just not, they just don't have access, you know, because of resources. You know, I think is really important because sometimes we don't we all just assume, oh yeah, it's it's great because if we can all get on Zoom and we can we get on these other platforms and have this great telemedicine. It's like, well, it's not that simple, but but it's promising, I guess, is, a, is the way I would look at it. So um, I'd like to um, switch gears a little bit. I, want, I, I read that you're passionate about empowering women to take charge of their own health care. Uh, can you talk to me about that and, and how do you sort of practice that in your work and your personal advocacy? Um, so there's a lot of components to that. I think that, you know, we know that, um, especially for younger women who are non-smokers and we have seen an, really an epidemic of, of lung cancer and non-smokers that have been predominantly women. Um, we first have to send the message out, you know, I think for a long time when tobacco was really tied in, uh, tobacco and lung cancer were one thing and there was a lot of st stigma, you know, the image of people just thinking of men smoking and lung cancer was one and really they didn't, women don't think of m breast cancer as their cancer that they need to worry about and they don't really think about lung cancer. So I think one of the things that I, that I, um, that is that strong message that we give to our community is that um, women get lung cancer like men do. Um, they, women get lung cancer at a, at a lower rate of smoking exposure. So um, it's important that, and there's a whole um, initiative to really uh, include more people in screening, especially more women with less smoking history by decreasing the criteria to 20 pack year smoking history. And I think that there is a lot of data from the international lung cancer trials that the women that do get screened get a lot of benefit and you can detect lung cancer 
um, in women if you start a little bit earlier. So that's one of the things that we want to send the message out that, you know, lung cancer is the most common um, cancer death for women and more women die of lung cancer than breast cancer. And women every, every year think of their mammograms, but they're not thinking about lung cancer screening. It's not in the radar. So we have to put her in the radar. Um, the other thing that I think is important is that women have to be very proactive about their symptoms. So um, we have, you know, her, seen patients that have shortness of breath and had back pain. And these are symptoms that in, in women sometimes get overlooked um, by primary care doctors. Um, and unfortunately, we've seen women with metastatic cancer that present very advanced that tell us that they've been talking to their doctors about back pain for months. Um, and I recently saw a, a woman yesterday who told me this story and it really um, made me think a lot about, you know, how we listen to women and their symptoms and do we take them seriously and do women themselves seek out care when they're not being heard. So that's, you know, part of the message, you know, one, women get lung cancer and uh, women need to be screened for lung cancer. Number two, women get lung cancer, their symptoms might be um, overlooked. Um, and then the third part is really, you know, for all lung cancer patients, when you meet a doctor to really get the best care, uh, you have to get understanding of the tumor, the mutations, um, you have to get tested, you have to go to a facility that would offer you kind of the, the latest treatment. And um, in lung cancer, particularly, there's a lot of research. And I just want to kind of send a message out there that, you know, we we patients have have a lot of power. I mean, we have large databases like clinicaltrials.gov. We had great patient advocates that are online, and I think people need to do their research and and and, and know that that it is right to come to your doctor with your own questions and your own questions about research that you read online. Yeah, I think the process of of understanding, you know, those those symptoms that sometimes often get overlooked, that. I think it's going to take time. And we, I think all of us as advocates are working on in the lung cancer community to try to, to change that so that even at the primary care setting, you know, for people like me, I, I, I never smoked. And so that's, and I had, and I got pneumonia um, twice actually. And so, but it wasn't even, there wasn't even a thought we didn't have a, my, me and my primary care didn't even have a conversation about, about lung cancer. So it didn't even pop up. So I, I you know, this idea of, of, there's a lot of, of ways that people can help themselves by being their own advocate, of course. So I think this is the, what you just said is an important message that I can share with with the people who listen to my show, you know, to talk about you know being proactive um, um, about that. And I know you have a special interest in early uh, early detection. I think we, we're kind of talking about that. Yeah. I think um, what other message is there in terms of early 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 detection? Because I know that you know the screening like it's great that we can. We're screening, you know, low dose, you know, CTs for, you know, former smokers or whatever. But, you know, it's really the ones that, you know, that have, have never smoked. Like nobody deserves to get lung cancer, but I, but it's those, especially women who at a, at a higher rate are non-smokers are getting diagnosed with, with lung cancer. So what else can we do? So I think that, um, you know, one of the things, you know, we have learned is that family history um, plays a big role in two ways. One yeah. is that, 
people grow, you know, sometimes we have patients that tell us, you know, my mother, my, my father had lung cancer. And then you think, well, they, everyone smoked in the house when they were little, maybe there was a secondhand smoking or an environmental exposure that is relevant to, to understand. And um, there was recently in Taiwan, they did a large trial. I don't know if you're aware of looking at uh, never smokers and looking at screening never smokers. And they found that they were detecting curable cancers to the same rate that they were detecting them in high risk smokers. So that that population in Asia is different because they have an over, um, they have more EGFR mutations, for example. But still, they did find in that group that family history was important. So we don't think these somatic, these mutations are inherited. We think that there might be other things that either we don't understand genetically or that they're in the environment. So I think um, for early detection, uh, understanding family history and what other genetic pathways make people have cancer in multiple family, gen in multiple generations. I think that we have a lot to learn. I, and I think that data from Taiwan is really um, interesting because family history did play a big role. That's how they, they selected patients. I think the other thing that is very exciting is re again, liquid biopsies. I mean, there's a lot of work and I, we recently participated in an early stage lung cancer summit with, with our Florida um, Oncology Association. And we basically review the technology, how it can be used for early detection of cancer. And there's a lot of trials that are ongoing and it's gonna take a long time to get, get the right test. But just the same way that we, for a long time, we've been trying to get a better te test for colonoscopy with stool studies and genetic studies that we really bypass the whole experience of colonoscopy. I think in the future, we'll have a better test that will select patients based on a blood test or a, buc a buccal swab. So once we understand the genes, I think we'll be able to uh, develop better screening tools that are not gonna be CAT scans. They're gonna be probably a combination of blood tests and CAT scans. And um, so I think in that in that end, um, you know, we get a lot of investment from pharmaceutical companies in developing drugs because those are the ones that the insurances will pay for. But I hope we get as much investment to developing these early stage um, tools because what we want to see is less people get lung cancer that need drugs. We really want to see less people, people get detected early. We know that we can cure early stage lung cancer 80% of the times with surgery. So that's the most rewarding part of my day when I see a patient that has been you know, cured with surgery. And obviously we've seen patients live longer with lung cancer that had been advanced and have complete remissions and immunotherapy has really change the whole paradigm and move the needle in terms of survival. And it's all very exciting, but it's still not all commerce. And I think that really the bottleneck is, you know, getting less, getting people detected early. Yeah. Well, I saw the smile on your face when you talked about how it was rewarding to yeah. be able to, you know, to, to help a patient with, you know, detected earlier. That's really cool. So um, now I know you're from Puerto Rico and you went to Colombia. So you were telling me about the whole transition and gaining confidence from from that. And I, I would love to tell you, have you tell us about that journey. Okay, so um, so I grew up in in Puerto Rico, and I went to an all girls Catholic school. <laughs> so I have to start that, and I mentioned that because um, you know my children go to school in, in Miami, and their experience is so different. But when I went to school, like every time an adult will walk into the room, we will have to stand up, and we will have to give this respect. And and when I went to college, I went to Columbia College, Columbia University. 
on a scholarship. And it was a really eye-opening experience uh, because there was not that much order. And, and um, there was, um, it, it took me a while to like speak up because it was a different environment that I grew up in. And, um, and also it was uh, challenging transitioning from um, Spanish. I, I've had a bilingual education, but it was mostly Spanish. The transition to an all English science um, curriculum was was challenging. But, you know, you have to hang in there. I think for anyone who has um, has family members or, chill, or you know, young people that are interested in medicine, I'm the first doctor in my family. And I was really didn't, know a lot about what to expect in a way that I think was um, helpful because, you know, I think my children see me work really hard and they see me put a lot of hours. So they probably have a, a bias about medicine being, you know, very time consuming, but I didn't know. So I was had this idea that I wanted to take care of people. I had seen doctors take care of my my grandmother when she had cancer. So I I, I really wanted to do it. And it was tough. It was um it was tough. And, and there were times that I wanted to give up. Actually, when I started pre-med at Columbia, about a quarter of the class was pre-med. And by the time we graduated, it was 10%. <laughs> so there's a lot of like um, but to, to hang in there, I think is the, to be resilient and hang in there and stick to your to your goal is important. And and people you meet along the way helpful. And I think for for uh, a woman of color and a Hispanic, seeing other um, 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 mentors who are also like look like you is very um, kind of sets, moves you in the right direction. So there's this um, uh, one of the heads of general medicine who's now at Cornell, Susana Morales. So she was one of my mentors. And I remember the day that I was about to say, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I listened to her and I went after she spoke. And, you know, I, I asked, I told her, you know, I'm, I'm a Columbia and it's, the, my science grades are not that great. And she told me, you can do this. And she just, just because she said it and she was in an authority figure to me, Made, meant, meant so much. And along the way, I, I found other uh, mentors, Doris Weather, who's uh, um, no longer with us, but she's a, a pioneer in sickle cell research at Harlem Hospital. She was also a great mentor and also um, believed in, in, my, in me and my dreams. And I think that that's one of the things that I want to do for other people. Like, you know, and I, I'm a, I, I have mentees um, through ASCO that I work with that are in Miami and outside of Miami. And just really the message is that you just have to, you just need people to believe in your dreams and give you a little bit of guidance. And the rest, you just have to work hard. Um, so I went to Columbia and then uh, stayed in New York for a long time and um, went um, to fellowship at UPenn, which was a great place there. I had also was very fortunate to have a great um, female uh, mentor, Tracy Evans. Um, who was there at the time, um, and then Corey Langer, who joined later, and really um, people that were really devoted to find the best um, treatments for lung cancer patients and had. And I think um, thoracic oncology now has become a very exciting field with a lot of drugs. But when I started, we really only had like, you know, carboplatin, pemetrexid, uh, and bevacizumab. And I remember when I was a fellow, that was the first time that the median survival for one of these combinations went over a year. So, you know, to, to, to just look forward in, in a decade, um, how we have patients without mutations, median survivals, like, you know, years and years and people really living longer and longer. So it's been really rewarding. Um, and I think when I started, I'd never envisioned that we would be here today. And I think it's getting better every day. You really have been part of uh, this sort of revolution, you know, and I think a lot of us, in the lung cancer community as patients, you know, we're, we, 
we're so grateful. I mean, I can tell you how grateful I am. And I was, I was, I was diagnosed 20 years ago. So I was, I was at the time that you're just, mm-hmm. that you're speaking of when it was just like, oh my goodness. And so that's why I live such a life of gratitude because, you know, here I am today. And I do have friends who are health positive, who, you know, are in their fifth clinical trial, you know, who are still living you know, like 10, 10 plus years later. So it's, it's really amazing, you know, and one of the common themes of people that come on my show is this, this whole notion of, of, of mentorship. And I saw, again, I saw you smiling when you were talking about those people along the way and how you're kind of reaching back to help the next generation coming forward. Right. And, and you're actually your, your handle on, I believe your handle on Twitter is Latina MD. Is that? Yes. Yes. (laughs) So when I, uh, so I, I, I think I opened that account more like 70 years ago. And so my last name is Rodriguez, which is one of the most common last names in Spanish. And I was trying to type in my name (laughs) in every other way it was taken. And then I thought, Latina MD, why not? And, you know, I, I stick to it. And and now people brand their names, but I thought Latina MD, I just thought that if someone wanted to search something by a Latina and then they found someone who's doing science and they found someone who is interested in the community, I thought it would be inspiring that it was just a Latina. So I didn't think it was about my name. It really was about what, what we represent. But I like it though. I think it works, right? It's very distinctive to me. So are you seeing progress, by the way, in, in that, this idea of, of people who look like me and people who look like me being treated by people who look like me? Do you see progress in that? I think, you know, so I'm at an institution that it's uh, fortunate enough that we are in a market that we have a lot of talent that is, you know, um, Hispanics. We have a lot of um, talent that comes from South America um, and really excellent uh, physicians that are that we work with. So we we don't have to try really hard to get um, uh, role models here who are um, Hispanic, but or Latino. but you know we do have to try hard and and really the institution and many of the institutions are really reaching out to the pipeline of um, young scientists and high school students who are african-american and hispanics of different neighborhoods who may not have access to the mentors in their areas to really get more people interested in science and and you know i have young children at the time and and I see it, like, especially for girls, um, girls are not encouraged to do science when they're young. And if they struggle in math, they're basically quickly moved to something else like art or they basically like they're, instead of working through it, they kind of basically get labeled as you are going to do something else. And I think that we lose a lot of talent by not really starting young um, with with girls especially and and, and African Americans and and Latino students who may not have access to um, people in their households who know what to do or who may help them with homework. I mean I we we know that there are kids that they just their schools don't have the same access and they're not gonna be able to, you know, when they make it, they're really stellar because they have made it in circumstances where there was really no role models. So I think that one thing that I think the internet has done and, and social media has done is that they really have started a movement, a kind of a grassroots movement of, um, of more students who are making it, um, um, creating a safe space because, you know, we have people that make it through all these hurdles and then they go to institutions where they experience discrimination. Um, I recently read a very interesting article from a doctor in Australia who was um, South Asian talking about her accent and how people view her in Australia. And I'm like, I can relate to that, how people view me when I was um, 
when I was going through my training and, um, and how people react to your accent, how people react to how you look, you know, it's not all pretty when you're training and it does make sometimes students feel unsafe. And I think that it's one thing that social media has changed the conversation is that has, it's made it safer for people to talk about this. And there's all kinds of communities now on uh, Med Twitter, like um, Black, um, uh, there's Latina, um, Latinas in medicine, uh, Black women in medicine. There's a lot of support. And I think that that's only going to make it um, get us get us to have more talent in our in our workforce. Totally. I, I, I appreciate that. I'm so glad for people like you that mm-hmm. and others like Narjas Doom and others that, you know, that are uh, friends of mine now that um, are passionate about particularly young young women, young girls, you know, yeah. you know, like in middle school, even, you know, to just try to keep them engaged in science and interested in science. So um, so. I want to uh, ask you about something that's really uh, close to my heart. Um, it's the White Ribbon Project, and um, actually, that's how I—that's how I came across you. To be honest, Estelle, I, I was—I was going through Twitter, and all of a sudden, I, all of a sudden, I was like, "Okay, what the heck? I, I know this. I, I recognize that symbol. Um, you brought the the White Ribbon um, to the Florida Society for uh, Clinical Oncology Lung Lung Screening Summit um, last month, and I think that's amazing, by the way, and I want to thank you for that. And I wanted to ask you, um, first of all, how did you get involved with, with the White Ribbon Project? How did you get a White Ribbon? Well, so I've been trying to get a White Ribbon for some time. <laughs> they're not hard. They're hard to get. So I, I had, I had message um, um, the the organizers in Twitter, and, and I was waiting to see how it would make it to me. But um, there, there's a group that got together in Florida, and they produce, must produce all these ribbons. And I thought they were made out of paper, and I wanted to make one, but they actually made out of wood, and they paint. So they're very sturdy. And um, um, I told them we were going to be at this meeting for FLASCO, is the Florida um, Oncology Association. And I was so glad. And I was like, oh, can I please have it? So they gave it to me and they were glad. And then I took a patient with, um, I have it in my office. So now when some of our patients who are more comfortable really being out there, I mean, not everybody wants to. Um, you know, take the pictures of themselves. But we had a patient who took a picture and was very happy to do so to kind of raise awareness of lung cancer. And I think that when we have um, different people carry this, in a way, kind of a banner, Um, you know, it used to be that um, lung cancer, when I started doing lung cancer, it was the invisible ribbon. It was like a clear color ribbon because it was a, a cancer that got very little funding and no one talked about. Now we have a white collar, which is better. Um, (laughs) I guess it's better than invisible. But it's still, I think when you take these pictures, it's so powerful because you see, you know, you see people of every age, you see people in different parts of the country and you get the message that this is affects all of us and that we're all we're all in it it together and that we need to support each other. And I think that the fact that this was started by patients and advocates, it makes it even more powerful, you know, than doctors. I mean, really, the patients themselves want to change the the message or they want to they want to get rid of the stigma associated with lung cancer. And I think that that's going to make it better for us to get more research funding for all the studies that we want to do and to really reach more patients. Yeah, what was the what was the reaction of people at the at Flasco when you had the ribbon there? Oh, they were like, <laughs> well, first of all, I'm a little petite, so the ribbon kind of took half of my size. <laughs> but they were they they asked questions, and you know, I I told them you have to look it up on Twitter. I mean, this is really this is really a movement. This is really something that is traveling across the country, and it's it's grassroots, which is 
very powerful. And um, and um, I'm, I'm hoping, or I mentioned to you before, I'm hoping that most of our doctors are now working remotely, but when we get together in person, uh, we will take a picture all together with the, with the ribbon. So I am just honored to have my own ribbon that I can share with our group um, here in the South Florida um, community. Well, we really appreciate it. And I can tell you that from our perspective, because I am part of the White Ribbon Project, the power of, of clinicians and, and researchers uh, showing photos of, of with the White Ribbon Project, uh, with the White Ribbon, is super powerful because it's great for us, you know, to, which, which was what caught my attention, right? There's, you know, there's Sharice Pompey and she's in San, you know, San Francisco and there's, you know, so-and-so down in Miami and there's so-and-so in Boston. And, and the visuals were really great. But then once I started seeing clinicians being um, shown in the photos and cancer centers, you know, stepping forward. So there, now there's, you know, there's an oncologist standing in front of us, you know, in front of, you know, the University of Kansas or, or whatever. It really means a lot to us. And I think that's fun. I think we're just beginning. I mean, we're really at the early stage of this, but we've, we've, we've delivered, I believe, close to a thousand ribbons now, wow. you know, and they're, as you, as you said, they're made by hand and people in Florida got involved and they, they made 137 ribbons and distributed them around Florida. So I, I'm hopeful and, and really excited to thinking about what you just said when people get back together, that we can keep doing this. I can tell you that I'm finally excited that I got, I'm going to get one in the Mass General Cancer Center where, where I was treated. So, you know, I'm mm-hmm. excited about that. And I'm not in current treatment, so it's a little bit harder for me because I'm yeah. not going to get photos taken, but I've been taking photos outside, you know, yeah. so um, but again, I just want to thank you so much for, you know, understanding the power that that has for us. I actually had somebody who said that uh, one of my guests, I believe it was um, Sharu Agarwal, who said that she understood the stigma from a clinician, from a, from a care perspective, you know, that she felt the stigma. Did you ever, do you ever feel that like yourself as being, you know, taking care of you know, lung cancer patients? Was there any, any stigma that you felt from your, from your perspective? I just thought it was kind of an interesting, interesting thought and uh, comment that she had made. Well, I mean, I think that, um, you know, one of the, you know, when people come to us with a new diagnosis of cancer, and you know, I'm a lung cancer specialist, so I see every week, I, every day, I see a new patient with lung cancer. And it really, you know, it, it's, it's so disheartening to have people carry this stigma that, smoking had, and you know, we have to ask people their smoking history, which sometimes I don't even like to ask because I'm like, does it matter? It doesn't really matter. Right. But we collect this data. So we have to ask you, but you know, when, when you ask and they, you can see their, their face turns because, you know, there's a stigma that either you did it to yourself or it's something that, that you did wrong and, and no one deserves lung cancer. And I think uh, from that perspective, you know, treating patients that carry that extra burden, it's, um, it's, 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 it's sad to me, and I hope that we can change that message. Um, I, when I decided to do lung cancer, and I, I was really the only fellow doing lung cancer at Penn, could you imagine now they have 10? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but, um, but back then people were like, oh, that's like, you know, palliative care. And I'm like, no, this is like, wow. we're, taking, we're taking care of patients. And we, I mean, this is before we had obviously all better options, but we yeah. did have um, erlotinib and gefitinib. And we can see that this cancer affected so many patients that we, um, we more of us needed to be involved. So I don't know what's the, the stigma really, that really what really touches my heart is really patients um, um, not feeling comfortable coming forward. You know, we have breast cancer patients that 
you know, the moment they get a diagnosis is sad, but there's a whole community of pink that supports them. You know, there's, yeah, and that's yeah. what I wish the White Ribbon Project will do for people is that a whole community of white ribbons will be surrounding them with love. And I think breast cancer patients, you know, I'm, I'm very involved in the, I'm in the board of the American Cancer Society that does a lot of great work making strides. They do have this great like races and fundraising and it's very easy to get, um, donors and advocates for breast cancer, but very challenging to get patients to come forward for lung cancer. And I hope that, you know, one of the things that this project will do is really get patients to have more advocates that really speak out and, and demand that support. Yeah, I think you're, you're right on because that is that is the, the vision for the White Ribbon Project. And from my perspective, I have this, uh, I have this vision of imagine if, right? I love thinking like that. Like imagine if, imagine if, you know, people, every patient that or newly diagnosed patient that went to see an oncologist at a cancer center, they said, and here's your white ribbon. You, you know, you, you don't want to join this community, but you are now part of this community. And there are, there's a lot of love and, and support out there for you. And so we're kind of looking at the way that that happened in the breast cancer community and thinking that's aspirational for us. Yeah, right. and wear it and wear it with pride because I think that's that's yes. the stigma when people don't feel comfortable talking about their like their lung cancer experience, then you know that there's a problem, no? Exactly. People, people exactly. Don't, people are not they're not they're they're that's an extra burden that they have to go through. Absolutely, and that's re I really appreciate you totally getting it, and and there's a lot like you out there, and we're going to find them more, and we're just going to keep going. So we really appreciate um, your involvement. So I want to ask you. You know, one last thing I want to, and I, I always ask everybody this, um, outside of your work, is there something that you can tell us that you're passionate about or that maybe people don't know about? Hmm. Um, so I, um, um, so I, <laughs> No, I mean, I have a lot of things that I'm, I'm a lot of things that I'm passionate about. So I'm a big party planner. And um, one of the things that um, has been very challenging is that you can't have parties. I mean, I meant birthday parties, not like, you know, so no, course, I have yeah. children and I, I like to, I plan their, par their parties the whole year. And this year has been challenging because we can't have, we can't get together the same way we <laughs> used to get together. Uh, but I do um, have a lot of, I'm very crafty. So I, 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 uh, I made everyone for, for the holidays. Everybody got a cup with their names because I got a cricket. If you know about these things, you make your own labels. And um, so, you know, one of the things that oncology is very, um, I was thinking about mindfulness in oncology for oncologists. Um, I have some friends that do work on that that are working in New York and psychiatry. I think during this whole pandemic, we all had to kind of sit back and, and regroup because it's been so stressful. But oncologists have this all the time. I mean, we, every, I will tell you, you know, I have partners that I've been fortunate to work for many years. And every week someone comes into my, like an adult oncologist comes into my office and they kind of break down. They're like, you know, this patient who I took care of for a long time is not doing well. And, and that really, you know, it hurts us. It, it, takes, it takes a lot out of the doctor. So the way that I keep my energy up, I exercise. I'm a big crossfitter. I, I do all these crafts and imagine all this party planning for kids. <laughs> so I think people need to find um, a way to, um, to get their energy because our patients depend on us. You know, when 
what, one of the last things you would like to see is an oncologist crying when you come in to see them. So, <laughs> so I think, you know, it's um, doctors need to, um, oncologists need to find time to take care of themselves, to take, be with their families, do the things that are fun for them. And that would allow you to be a better doctor. That's a great message. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. By the way, my wife is a big party planner too. She she's a nurse um, at at Mass General, and she she literally yesterday was saying, "Gosh, I should be a party planner because <laughs> someone was retiring, and so she did all of the work. She did a Zoom call. Oh, with, oh and she put together decorations and all that kind no, of it stuff. It brings so. a lot of joy. It brings a lot of joy. Absolutely. Well, Stella, uh, so thank you so much for being on the program. I really do appreciate, it. and all of us from the lung cancer community really appreciate all the work that you do and your commitment and. Um, very strong message that you put forward, but seriously, we're, we're so grateful for you and thank you for being on my show. Thank you. Thank you so much awesome. for inviting me. Take care.